Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by CityCo, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from CityCo, and today we're talking beer, bars and food at Port Street Beer in the Northern Quarter with Johnny Hayes from Common and Port Street, and supposedly Marco Husak from Bundobust as well, though he's not here yet. So if you, if, if you hear some bundling about in a moment, that'll be him arriving and picking up a microphone. This is also the day of the uh, Feyenoord City match, so if there are any sirens going past, you'll probably know why. Obviously Feyenoord fans, not City fans. That, that would never do. Um, to start with some background, Johnny, uh, uh, talk us through the evolution of the empire. Common, onto Port Street, and then onto... Yeah, well, uh, we uh, opened Common... Uh, nearly 13 years ago, it's 2004, so uh, we were one of the earlier bars in the area. Was there anything else um, on Age Street at the time? Uh, I think uh, Socio Rehab just pipped oh, us course, by yeah, a few yeah. months. Uh, so yeah, they were, they were down on the corner, you had uh, Blue had opened some sort of six or eight months previous. Uh, but apart from that, you had the, the couple of... Uh, Northern Quarter stalwarts of uh, Cord and Centro, Matt and Fred's, obviously. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the, we, we were in there fairly early on. So we had a good run uh, at, at the area before it really started to hot up. You know, we had probably five years um, where, you know, we really saw the area developing, really uh, saw lots of new businesses open and saw the amount of people that were, were seeing the Northern Quarter as a destination really, uh, really balloon. Um, so after five years, we had the opportunity to expand into the neighbouring unit at Common. Um, that allowed us to sort of branch out a little bit, start doing a little bit more craft beer, start doing a little bit more food. And um, it was around that point when craft beer started to become a much bigger part of our of our own interests, I guess. Uh, and customers really started to respond to it. Um, and, you know, I guess the the sort of genesis of that for us was was people like Marble, Marble Brewery, uh, Thornbridge Brewery, uh, Brewdog were really coming onto the scene at that point. And it was the first time that we ever really got the opportunity to buy um, top-end uh, US craft beer as well. Um, they just started to be the the seeds of of more of that coming into the country. You sort you sort of had Brooklyn was was one of the first, wasn't it? That you could get in bottles almost everywhere, and then that brought a few Goose Island and a few other things in at that time. Yeah, so yeah. I get. I guess Brooklyn was fairly widely available. Sierra Nevada, Anchor, and and Goose Island were were amongst the first. Um, and then you know we we started to get a little bit more uh, rare stuff, um, and and this was a case of us just getting out there and trying to find out who was distributing these things, who was importing it and, and trying to sort of build those relationships, which we did quite successfully. And I guess during that period as well, that that is, was right at the start of the real explosion of UK craft breweries. Um, and it was sort of that I always kind of use the analogy of we uh, common behind the bar, we had this middle fridge and the middle fridge was what uh, we dedicated to all our craft beer and it gradually got fuller and fuller and fuller and had a bigger and bigger range. Um, and we started to get more stuff on tap. And it was from that idea that we uh, we decided to kind of go a, a lot more specialist and that's where the idea for Port Street really came from. Um <laughs> 
is Marco. Marco joining us <laughs> at this point. It's all right, we're still on Johnny's background to his business empire, so we can move on to your business empire in a second. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, that led to his opening uh, Port Street. And so how long's Port Street, Port Street been? It's nearly seven years, seven years in January. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we, we've, we've been here a good while. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, been, uh, it's been a really great, sort of ride for us here you know we we've uh we've seen a real explosion in in breweries uh a real kind of explosion in the styles of beer that are being brewed like a huge amount of experimentation and just a, a lot of people having a lot of fun making beer and we, we've been lucky enough to be on the front line of uh of selling a lot of it. So. Cool. So in those first few years at Common, um, presumably there's more of a reliance on DJs and evenings, and then the mix starts to change towards the more the specialism in beer. Where does food fit into the mix? I mean, sort of, if you actually look at look at your figures, what, what percentage does that contribute to the bottom line? Uh, well, I guess at that point at Common, we were probably about 25 to 30% uh, food sales. Uh, and, it, you know, Common was always quite a wet-led business. Um, and interestingly, when we started Port Street, it was always part of our plan to open a kitchen. We had a room downstairs that was going to be dedicated as a kitchen. Um, but then we got into it and we just decided that that was a really, really bad idea. So, you know, people were responding really well to what we were doing and we thought that we wouldn't complicate that or try and sort of accidentally derail that. By uh, by adding food into the mix, and I think that was a really good good decision. How, how much do you feel? I mean, obviously, a lot of it is to do with the availability expanding, particularly from the states, but that also means distributors coming into the business to bring stuff in, more breweries coming on board in the UK as well. Um, I mean, how much is, is it easy to un, is it possible to unpick the sort of the chicken and egg of how much there's a demand from from punters driving your change to this, and how much just the availability change. Uh, I, I suppose, yeah, that's put pretty tricky in some ways. I, I think um, I think the availability of those first that first wave of amazing American craft beer and amazing British craft beer with those really kind of early adopters, I think that just whetted people's appetite a little bit, really. And then it was it was very much a sort of push and pull situation. Then you know we, we were really interested to find new beers and to track new beers down and to track new breweries down. And we did a whole series of Meet the Brewers, um, getting breweries from around the country to come and bring all their, their best wares. And people, the, the interest in that just went a bit crazy. Did it become a competitive thing compared to some of your peers to try and get more interesting stuff and new stuff? Well... Yeah, I, I suppose there's a there's a bit of an internal competition, I suppose. But um, I mean, to be honest, for for quite a while, we we had the run of Manchester in terms of like this this particular sort of strand of craft beer. You know, again, I wouldn't take uh, take credit for for creating this scene. You know, Marble have been doing it for a long, long time, uh, and so and so had lots of other like really great operators. But I think. We were the first people in Manchester to put a kind of modern spin on it, to put to put that kind of craft beer moniker to it, really. And uh, and I think that that was, you know, 
it did really capture the zeitgeist. Yeah, there'll, there'll be point. places like uh, Marble and uh, Frog and Parrot in Sheffield, from which I can remember from 25, 30 years ago, and uh, Duck and Drake, I guess, in Leeds as well. That brewed their own and had that interesting mix of... Uh, younger people and then people who've been serious drinkers for a number of years and done, done that but it's a somewhat different crowd and a somewhat different market to what you've got probably yeah i i, I certainly think it's uh the crowd's moved on i mean the the <clears throat> the interesting in craft beer if that's how you choose to term it uh it's it, it's become much broader i think you know there's a lot more younger people there's a lot more women uh, it's a it's a it's a less sort of exclusive sort of it has a less exclusive air to it I think um, and I think that's been you know obviously for, after doing Port Street we went on to do Indie Man Beercom which was a, a our attempt at sort of remaking the the beer festival format um, and you know we, we've experienced both through Port Street and there and and Common that. You know, there's a really wide interest in craft beer and, and the, the type of people that you see coming in and drinking and spending money and hanging out is much broader than I think you would see in a traditional boozer or at a traditional camera beer festival. Um, and that's not to say that they, they don't have a place anymore at all, but I think that there the, the has become a little bit of a two-stream system of a, of a traditional sort of camera beer drinker and a kind of uh and a craft beer drinker they, you know there's lots of gray areas in between but i think they're, they're definitely two ends of the i think we'll come back to the uh, the attitude of camera towards the craft beer explosion having fought the good fight for 35 40 years now 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 to see them superseded to some extent um, there's a little bit of snobbishness there as well i think yeah no i mean not for me personally obviously. no no no, no. <laughs> uh, marker um um, if you can talk through the inspiration for Bundobust and sort of where it came from, how it's doing. Cool. So um, I had a s small bar in Bradford called the Sparrow, which was um, kind of slightly influenced by the kind of Belgian beer cafe, I guess. Um, cask focused with a few keg beers and a lot of the kind of traditional Belgian beers in the fridge. Um, we opened six years ago, so slightly after Johnny opened Port Street, so he, he opened first, and he, he's kind of... Johnny, this place was an inspiration, as was North Bar, um, for, for the first bar, the Sparrow. Um, and while I was doing that, there was an Indian vegetarian restaurant called Prashad, who have been going about their business um, for 30 years. They started off next to a laundrette as a kind of a sweet, Asian sweet shop to serve the local Indian community, kind of got popular. They kind of catered for parties and people bought the samosas and things like that to cook at home and reheat them. Um, they became popular. They bought the unit next door, put a few tables and chairs in, became a bit of a restaurant um, and grew and grew and they moved to a bigger site. Um, but Maya, the, the son of the original owners of Prashad, um, just tweeted me on uh, to the Sparrow account and asked if we wanted to do a beer and food matching event at their restaurant um, so we went with six beers um, they did a six course tasting menu we paired each course with a beer um, we did two events like that and they sold out it was a, a success and then they came to the Sparrow to do more of an informal kind of street food set up vibe and we had put loads of juicy IPAs on oh they probably weren't as juicy as they are now but IPAs 
on that was about three years ago and it went well again and we stayed in touch and we decided that it's 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 just a, a simple concept and we decided to Are you sur- surprised by how popular it was uh, i guess so yeah i mean we had amazing feedback um Luckily, one of the landlord of our original Leeds site was present at one of the events, and he was saying, oh, "I've got this space for you in Leeds. You should take it on. It's a great idea." Um, me and Maya didn't really know each other, to be honest. We weren't friends. It was the first time we worked together, so it was a bit of an unknown, really. So we decided to take on this risk together and open a vegetarian restaurant um, that had an amazing beer range. Um, we did a lot of pop-ups to promote our opening. So we did um, Leeds International Beer Festival was our first event as Bundobust. Um, and then we did a lot of pop-ups in, in local bars in Leeds, like as set up, so North Bar, Kirksell Bridge, Friends of Ham. We did a bit of a vegetarian takeoff, so a good community feel. And then we opened um, with a queue outside the door, and then it's just kind of snowballed since then. We opened Manchester December last year. We did a pop-up actually at Port Street to promote the um, our opening and we've done Indyman for two years. We couldn't do it this year, unfortunately, as we were a bit busy. But yeah, so we kind of followed the same model when we opened Leeds, like we'd, we'd do some events to promote our opening, really. And continuing to expand more cities? Um, yeah, we're hoping to open in Liverpool in spring, summer next year. So Have you got a site there already? Kind of. But, yeah. It's one of those. <laughs> it's one of those, yeah. It's, it depends you know. when this goes out. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's, you know, hopefully we'll be able to confirm everything in a, by the end of the year. So. And you're at the point now where certainly the last time, two times I've been to Bundabest, I haven't been able to get in. So yeah, it's, it's we're sorry popular. about that. It is popular. And I don't take it personally. It's right. Yeah, we're trying our best. Um, I guess it's a great position to be in that way. We're always full, you know, even on a Monday, Tuesday night, we can be turning people away, but... You know, we we do want to make sure everyone gets sat down and so you, fed. You might uh, look at expanding, or, you, or is it still um, too early? To... There's ideas, you know, maybe a second site in Manchester. I don't think that's going to work for us, but who knows? Um, I don't think we've been smart, smart with the seating at Bundabus Manchester. We it's a big space, and you know, I think in January we're going to close for the first week or two and play around with the seat and maybe we can squeeze an extra twenty thirty seats in if we just move things around. Um, so yeah, we are looking at. How can we squeeze more people in, really? I mean, it's an interesting venue, being where it is on the gardens. Was Did you feel that was a risk at all when you were yeah, taking it Yeah, of course. Um, it's a, a ha- edge northern quarter, I suppose. We, 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 we <laughs> were very keen to class it as the northern quarter, but we're kind of proud of where we are now, the Piccadilly Gardens. It was a busy street, um, a lot of footfall. Obviously, it's got its certain problems, but we, we kind of like being in... We don't need to be in the fanciest shopping centre or... Uh, in a site that has a big shop window we we kind of took a basement unit that has no window and it has an atrium so it has some natural light Um, and and we we, I don't know we just saw the site and fell in love with it it was cheap we could afford it that was one factor I guess and what we found out as well when we came into Manchester that a lot of the commercial property doesn't come available on the market so the deals are done before anyone knows about it and that was the only site that we could find of it actually being advertised and probably because no one else wanted it, to be honest. It yeah, was, I think that's that's broadly true for F&B. People know when they're putting up a commercial development, they know what sort of brands they're wanting to talk to, which unfortunately means that you do get the same brands popping up or at least the same companies running out a new brand in various places. Exactly that. I think we're in a position where we're actually getting approached now. But um, 
we had to put together kind of a a proposal to the landlord, like who we are, what we're going to do, how much money we're going to spend on the fit out. And we had to pitch for the property really against two other people. And it was a bit weird, really. Um, it was a, it, it, before that, it was a Chinese restaurant or Chinese buffet that had been closed for maybe two, three years. It was damp. It was awful. Um, but we saw, we saw, I don't know, we, we, we saw the kind of, we looked past that and we, we thought we'd have a special site if we made it good, really. I suppose as, as a, a new brand to Manchester when you came in, having that sort of that downstairs access being slightly, well, literally underground, uh, but slightly underground in term, terms of brand as well, certainly helped with the feeling of this is a secret place and this is a new place you want to tell your mates about type thing. Yeah, I think that definitely works in Manchester more so than in Leeds. I think people in Manchester like the hidden places. They like seeking out those bars on the back streets maybe whereas I, I think Leeds you need the shop front it's cool Johnny are you looking for more venues more expansion uh, well I, I suppose in some ways in this industry you've, you've always got a little eye on that so and nothing uh, in particular at the moment but um, yeah you've, you've always got to be looking to the future there's, there's, there's bits more of Edge Street you could expand into isn't there yeah <laughs> <laughs> That'd, that'd be lovely, but yeah, it's it's getting pretty chocker down there now. It is that chicken place is just roaring along. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're doing a doing a really good job, and I mean, it, it it works for us. You know, we we were the only the only place on that street for years and years and years, and you know, it's great having Edge Street being a little bit more of a of a destination now. But you know, I mean, just to comment on on Marco's sort of development, you know, I think it's a, just a our paths have crossed uh, numerous times over the years so uh, yeah I've got to know Marco reasonably well and I think it's just a great it's a great idea basically and I think in some ways you know you could put it almost anywhere and the reputation of it now would you know you would attract people and I think that's been been phenomenally successful at that site and you know you should, like hats off to you you know you've Thank done a great you. job it's one of those things we were talking about sort of hitting the zeitgeist as craft beer came along and you able to ride that wave but you've sort of hit got can you have two zeitgeists at the same time you've hit two waves I guess so the street, uh, street uh, food wave uh, and, and the craft beer yeah, wave yeah I think I think when we first opened Bundabus it craft beer was just starting to get big obviously Johnny was doing it before um, kind of when it was bubbling underground and saw the growth but three years ago when we opened our first site it was definitely getting big and it's bigger still but we were like you say, craft beer, street food, vegetarian, a lot of gluten-free items. I think, but I think it was a happy accident. We didn't think, oh, we're going to put all this stuff together and it's buzzwords and cool. It's that classic thing. Of, it probably wouldn't have worked if you tried to jam it together. Exactly. It would be like one of those things that was dreamt in some kind of marketing office by someone that doesn't know how to run a bar or a restaurant. But it was an accident. We're vegetarian because Maya's family are um, strict Hindus and their family restaurant in Bradford or Dridlington is vegetarian. Um, a lot of the dishes and traditional street food dishes in India are vegetarian and vegan anyway, so what we do is authentic, so we are replicating that. And then, again, with the beers, I'm a beer fan, and I think, you know, Indian food and, and beer, it's, it's, you know, it's the nation's favourite dish and the nation's favourite drink, but we're just presenting it in a slightly different package, I guess. So um, we're talking about... Both of you riding that craft beer wave, I guess. Why has it taken off across the country? Well, I think I think Marco sort of alluded to it there a little bit. I think it's it's the na nation's favourite drink, isn't it? And I think uh, 
in Britain there's a real strong association with beer and there's there's um there's a nostalgia and there's a real history in the in this country and and in many ways like we were we were sort of falling short of our history in many ways and like you mentioned before I think Cameron did a fantastic job of uh keeping cast beer alive um but then I suppose what's happened with the the craft beer movement is that that people have looked to those traditions and they they've revived them in many ways you know there's so many styles that are so prevalent now that you know 25 30 years ago you just wouldn't really have been able to get in this country i mean that the ipa that you could buy 30 years ago bear no resemblance to the original product that was made you know in i the, think i in started drinking 30 years ago 32 33 i can't remember seeing an ipa in a pub at that time at all. yeah well you there, know, might, there might have been one i should think what, what were yeah. you drinking back then uh, <laughs> i was gonna say mild but mild. i probably wasn't drinking <laughs> mild uh, green king a lot well yeah, yeah you know green king's ipa you know it's a favorite beverage of many but you know it's what four percent it's you know it's you know it's got a suggestion of hops more than actual hops <laughs> in it but it always tastes the same whatever pub you go <laughs> exactly yeah yeah but but then I think it's these, uh, there's, there's a lot of creative brewers and a lot of brewers that have been interested in the history of beer that have revived these old recipes um, and really been true to their origins in a way that, you know, I think was never a focus for camera. Camera were uh, worried about the beer dispense and that kind of historical uh, sort of aspect to it. They weren't necessarily like they didn't have much of an agenda to the actual beer itself. It's more about it being in a cask, secondary fermentation in the cask, uh, and all that kind of stuff. It, it didn't really. They don't really. They're not that bothered about what the actual beer is. I agree with that. Yeah, it's um, as long as it's in cask, it, it could be an amazing beer or an average beer, but they'll drink it. But they, I think they like the preservation and the heritage. I, I, I don't know. I'm, don't want to say too much because I might get in trouble, but, but you know, they've well, I guess camera was sort of set up and continued to run more in opposition to things rather than actually actively promoting Caspier or new Caspier and new new brewers. It was the hate of the Worthington can that you could buy in the early seventies and so on that you just get off the shelf that that, that really drove them. Yeah, absolutely, and I think I think the interesting thing with craft brewery craft breweries generally is there's a real sort of entrepreneurial spirit um because it's just a lot of people that are really passionate about what they're doing and they you know set up in an industrial unit or a you know a vacant space that you can shove a few tanks in and it's about making a product that they're really passionate about um and so yeah i get i guess that's part of the the difference that i would see in some ways is that you know craft beer is certainly about the beer you know it, it can come in any format it doesn't really matter you know as long as the beer is right you know it could be on keg it could be on cask it could be in a can it could be in a bottle it doesn't matter as long as the beer quality and the and the ethos behind the beer is there then then that that's that's why it's kind of interesting and that's why it's um it's so varied and so kind of, you know, the, there's a lot of inspiration that goes into uh, into the, the process and the making. How, how have you seen things change since you started the Sparrow, for instance? 
Um, pr- probably pretty much same to what what Johnny's seen really. Um, we started off. Um, I think even still now, actually, fifty percent of our sales at the Sparrow are cask, so I can't knock it. Um, um, we had two rotating keg lines. We've got four now, but yeah, just just beers getting more exciting. I, I noticed that when when we had the keg lines, it was pretty much um, European or American keg lines. Not a lot of British brewers were kegging. I think Magic Rock probably and Thornbridge maybe kind of the first of that time would you say Johnny I don't know they were yeah. kind of pushing it at Thornbridge more so than others um, but yeah I mean but then look at Marble who've been I remember tasting Dobber seven eight years ago and it was you know a total wow back then it was the first kind of IPR tasted very bitter I still remember it it was at Salter Beer Festival and I don't know they're, they're still making fantastic beers also so you've got brewers like Marble who were trailblazing back then and still are you know and you've got you've got this situation where you've still got the people. I mean, you you were talking about um, we we we'd be making a joke that you you can't have a row of uh, railway arches without having somebody that's making gin or somebody that's a microbrewery in it. Now it's just like what network network rail almost require it. They need a a gym and they need a microbrewery to make to make it work. But then you've got the others. Um, I mean, marble to some extent, but you've got people like Ilkley Brewery who started off as very small brewers, but be, have become national and now international as well. Are they managing to keep the spirit while they do that? Uh, I, I, I suppose that's that's open for debate, really. Um, I, I think, broadly speaking, yes, they are. I mean, there's a lot of big breweries that have got big investment and have grown fairly massive from fairly humble beginnings and in a very short space of time. I think, you know, Brewdog... Brewdog did all that yeah. marketing about six months ago that was obviously looking for major VC funding or to be bought out and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brewdog, uh, uh, a classic example of that, but I suppose, I mean, Camden Brewery as well, um, who have now been bought out by uh, InBev, so a big global brewery. So there's... There's quite a lot of movement in that sense in, in the market. And I, I think that's a very live debate at the moment, whether you continue to be a craft brewer or have any... Uh, yeah, what's the definition of craft, I guess? Exactly. Well, I mean, that, that, that's part of the problem because there isn't one in this country. So um, there, there is in the United States, by the way. But um, yeah, it's quite a loose terminology in, in this country. But I think it's... Uh, it's a kind of, it's a very subjective thing. You know, different people think different things are craft. But. And are we at peak craft beer or are we on the downside of a bubble or continuing to grow? Continuing to grow, I think. I think we're just at the beginning of it, to be honest. I think I think it's hard for probably new breweries. Um, there's kind of that many breweries, it's probably hard for them to all get their product into the, into the pubs, but I guess more pubs are starting to sell it craft beer more restaurants are starting to sell craft beer so hopefully it's kind of growing um at the same rate um but there's, i think there's more to be explored it's still a very small percentage of the uk beer market so i think there's definitely more more scope for growth and more people still getting into it we get people in at the time uh, all the time at bundabust especially that we're not just a beer bar with people coming in for the food and then they're trying the first ipa or the first sour beer and you know, it's an experience for them. They'll hopefully come back and drink more beer and drink good beer elsewhere. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there that haven't had a good pint of craft beer yet that, you know. So hopefully there's more fans to be 
out there. Fewer people have had it than haven't had it, I suppose. So talk me through the, uh, is, is a, a five pound f- pint ever reasonable? I think, uh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that there's, uh, there's a lot of talk about pricing a beer and there's a lot of people that complain about it. I think, and you know, I, I wouldn't say that they're right or wrong particularly. I mean, I can make a perfectly good justification for the price that we sell our beer for. You know, we, we, we pay the asking price pretty much for, from the brewery. We, we're not in a situation where we're so big that we can drive down the price of the product uh, from the brewery. You know, we're not, we, we're not Weatherspoons, we haven't got 2,000 pubs. So we, we, we don't have that buying power. Um, the breweries themselves are using more ingredients. They're using a great number of hops. Uh, you know, the, the, the cost of product for the brewery is that much higher. So essentially, we're all operating on our kind of normal margins, the margins that you would find anywhere else in the industry. It just so happens that, that the type and style of beer that we're buying, it, you know, there's, there's a a huge amount more put into those beers in the first place. Uh, there's lots of different techniques, might require special equipment. You know, the, there's beers that are that just take longer to make. So they take up capacity for, for a longer time. Um, you know, there's barrel-aged beers, there's sour beers, there's lots of beers that are that just take up space in a brewery and therefore, you know, that, that costs money. Um and then you know our, our our policy is you know we have a fairly standard industry standard markup, um, but we actually the more expensive the cost of the beer is, the the smaller our margin becomes. So you know we we try and we try and uh, keep the more expensive beers more accessible, but it it, it is difficult. But I think I think you know broadly speaking, I'm sure Mark Marco will attest to this. I think people see the value in it. Now, and I think if you've you've been going down your local uh, for for the last twenty years and and having a pint for two pound fifty week in week out, you come to Port Street or any uh, craft beer bar. I think it will be a shock to the system, and you probably won't like it very much. But then there's also an argument for saying that that uh, that the beer has it's it's not undervalued, but it's underpriced uh, in many situations. And whether that's because of big family breweries or, uh, you know, more traditional breweries or more traditional uh, sense of what beer should cost. But, I mean, it's no accident that pubs are going out of business left, right and centre. And it's essentially because, you know, we we offer a point of difference. We, we offer things that you can't, an experience that you can't buy in the supermarket. Whereas, you know, your local pub trying to compete with the supermarket, that that's, you know... They'll only compete that, on price, really. Yeah, yeah, that's the only way they can compete. And and people are preferring to go to the supermarket and buy beer that's cheap, that's the same what, as the, they'd buy in their local pub, and just being happy, you know, seeing their local pub go out of business. Because, you know, the businesses are, you know, they need customers, they need people to buy into it. And, and I think that's what... Uh, a lot of businesses in craft beer kind of understand to one point, well, they're, they're prepared to take that risk to say, well, this is worth this amount of money and hope that people sort of respond to it. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, especially in Bradford, when, once we started putting like three pound a half, four pound a half beers, it was a shock. Um, people had never seen anything like that before in Bradford. But but I think the customers, once you've got a loyal following, they kind of respect your decision. They know that it's a good beer um, and it's of a better quality. Like Johnny said, it's you know the they're made using far better ingredients, a lot more ingredients, time for matur maturation. Um, but yeah, I'd, and I, I guess as a, as a business with Bundabus, we do do the crazy beers. We, we've had a, a beer on for £5 a third, which sounds crazy, but then we always still offer a pint of Cascale for £3.40 £3 a pint. So you don't have to have the most expensive beer. As long as you're offering something at a decent price point for a session beer that people can have a pint of. Um, and, and it's presumably, it's a very different market to where you're still getting the pubs that are doing two pints for five quid or whatever it is for the five to six crowd or the 2am two, two, 2 to 4am in the morning crowd. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and I suppose, um, you know, if, if that's what floats your boat, then that, that's fine. But I think you, as long as you acknowledge that the, that the product that you get isn't as good. I mean, like it, it does a job, you know, it, it has alcohol in it and it will get you a bit tipsy, but it's not the same experience that we're offering here. And I think it's really, it's interesting to hear Marco say about always having that accessible product on there. And that, that we do exactly the same here. We always have a sort of three, three pound 30, three pound 40 pint on. We always have a standard lager. They're, always at a competitive price that you would find anywhere in any pub. But I think what people automatically do is they look at the top of the list. Like when you look at a wine list, you like you thumb through it and you go, oh, there's a bottle of wine on here that costs £2,000. This is outrageous. And then you, you kind of dismiss the fact that there's actually a glass of wine that costs like £3.50. And I think that's what people sometimes do here. They'll they'll scan the whole list and they'll find the most expensive thing and they'll be outraged by it, but nobody's forcing them to buy it. Do you, do you think that, I mean, we hear a lot, um, particularly talking to the universities and so on, that, that students don't drink anywhere near as much as they used to. Do you think one of the reasons is that if you're paying five quid for a third or whatever it is, you just can't drink the volume that you would have aimed to do as maybe a student or a young person many years ago? When I was a student, it was £1.20 a pint for Carlin or Carlsberg. But I don't know if these student nights still exist where they can get a pint for £1.50, £2. Pro probably not. I don't know. Uh, I guess that's chicken and egg of whether that's because there isn't a demand for it. If, the, if there was still a demand for it, they'd probably want to do it. Maybe they're just more boring these days. I don't know. They need to <laughs> yeah. go out and party more and drink more, I guess. That's what yeah, I think. I, I, I've, I've read a few things about this, about millennials just being boring and, you know, uh, not drinking and hedonism being out the window and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know, maybe they are actually just spending the few pennies that they've got on, you know, top-end beer. So they're not drinking uh, yeah. the same volume. Sipping they're spending for all so, night. They're, I they're agree. spending their, so, uh, their, their student loan on, uh, you know, barrel-aged imperial stouts. I agree to a certain extent. I think uh, instead of going out and getting drunk four times a week, like maybe me and Johnny did when we were students, um, they might save that occasion for one time a week. They'll buy better quality. I think the kind of nighttime lifestyles changed a bit. It used to be like nightclubs and parties and gigs, but going out to a Bundabust as an Indian street food and craft beer bar or Port Street, it's part of a 
experience for students and younger people now. Going to the Mackie Mare, for instance, for a treat, it's, it's the new going out for a, the younger generation, the millennial crowd. Yeah, yeah, I, t- I totally agree. And, you know, the, there's lots of examples of that in Manchester. Um, you know, Grub, Street Food, Fair, Bundabus, like you said, Mackie Mare. And that, that is the new going out in many ways. It isn't, it isn't getting completely legless. And, um, and more, more leisure things, these crazy golf inside, have a pint and play some crazy golf. It's, it's the new entertainment really or throw axes yeah <laughs> do you how, uh, how do you see the market going over the next few years um, can you give us a couple of uh, up and coming breweries that you're looking at or working with at the moment Johnny first well I, I guess everyone's sort of the, the the biggest player that's come into the market in the last few years in Manchester terms is is Cloudwater and I mean that they're, they're they're racing towards kind of uh, global recognition, and they're 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 doing an incredible job, and they're they're you know they're really starting to produce some some world class beers. Um, but then you know you've got f- fabulous sort of smaller operators who are you know they're they they've got a different sort of set of ambitions and stuff. You know, like Runaway uh, Track Brewery, um, uh, Blackjack, and Squawk, and all all these guys who are doing a really really great job. Um, and you know, I think that that will continue. I think one of the trends that you'll see is more and more breweries pushing to sell more beer direct to, to customers. So, you know, that's why you're seeing this explosion in brewery taps and, um, and, and inviting people into the brewery, like on a Saturday afternoon to have a few pints. And I think that's definitely going to be a trend that, that continues uh, and and even maybe trying to open their own outlets and stuff and and get that kind of direct sale model going. Anyone you're looking at, Marco? Well, I, I just think Manchester's pretty much spot for choice, really. Very lucky um, compared to other cities of a Manchester's size. You've got Track, which I'm drinking a half a pint of now. Marble, who obviously the OGs, the original ones. Cloudwater, like Johnny said, who are really pushing the boundaries like up there with the most innovative and kind of trend-led breweries but making top quality beer. Um, yeah, Squawk. And you've got your old school breweries as well. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how, how it's going to change. Um, I agree with Johnny in terms of more kind of tap rooms and brewery pubs where... Someone might open a pub, but they've got a working kind of brewery in there as well. I think that's going to be a big thing. I, I know Seven Brothers have opened up around the corner recently, but I think there's going to be more of that um, popping up. And Blackjack have opened their own bar. They've got an outlet in the Mackie Mare. I think brewers opening their own sites to get a better margin on that beer is is the way that things will be going. Which is sort of following the model of the early Victorian era, isn't it? Starting it's with going the back then, to the... And yeah, yeah, the, the establishments as well. Brewery pub. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and I think in, in many ways it's there's, it's not a kind of linear growth in, in, in craft beer. Like, I mean, we sort of thought when we first opened Port Street that, you know, like within a, the space of a few years, there'd be a rash of craft beer outlets opening across the city. And, and in many ways that kind of hasn't happened but there there isn't an outlet that opens that doesn't have a significant craft beer range now you know you you won't open a restaurant or a bar or any kind of operation without some craft beer in the fridge it's it's to be expected i think now i mean 
it's lazy if you you don't have that. It's easy to buy it. I'm showing Johnny and I opened the you know our, our first bar. Well, Johnny opened Port Street and I opened the Sparrow. It's it's hard to, harder to get the good beer. You had to get the find the specialist wholesalers <coughs> and distributors. But now everyone's wholesaling it, so you, you know you can get amazing beer in Weatherspoons. You can get six points in Weatherspoons, which is fantastic. You can go to any pub and buy a decent IPA. Um, so everyone's range is getting better, I guess. Yeah. And I, and I think that there's probably a more extreme end that's that's starting to to happen as well of air freighting from individual breweries anywhere in the globe and people going absolutely crazy about buying these super rare beers. So you'll ship a pallet of beer in from you know say other half brewery in Brooklyn or yeah. Bissell Brothers or um these kind of super niche, super local breweries in the States, um, and they all just land on the shores and everyone will go crazy for it, buying it up. Even breweries in America that don't sell outside of their brewery, um, or maybe to a few outlets in, I don't know, Portland or wherever. Or, or um, But yeah, they, you know, there's a few people that, like Johnny said, air freighting them over. Um, they'll they'll hit the very specialist niche shops and bars and boom they'll be sold out in two days. And another British breweries going back the other way. Yeah, I think I think there's an element of that, but I mean not not, not a we huge. We were a long amount. way behind in the circle. They were they were there 15 years before, weren't they? American uh, breweries. So. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, I I, I think uh, Cloudwater are occasionally sending stuff abroad, but I mean that the, the, there's breweries that are struggling to keep up with the demand here, mm-hmm. so. Um, yeah, why export if you can sell it all in a five kilometre kilometer radius, I guess. Um, and there seems to be a lot more kind of exchanges, foreign exchanges, where you got a brewer from America coming to do a few collaborations with, say, Magic Rock and Cloudwater, and they'll go over there and do some collaborations. So that's that seems to be happening a lot more. Um, but I think, I think in terms of British beer, we are catching up to America. We used to be so far behind. It was un- unbelievable. I remember... When I went to New York for the first time five years ago, I, I just couldn't believe that you could buy amazing beer in the local corner shop, in every bar, in every restaurant. Um, but we we are catching up over here. Are there, are there star brewers within this as well? Are the individuals known as much as the brands? It's one of two personalities. The original um, American ones, like you, your man from Dogfish Head and Garrett Oliver from Brooklyn, um, Steve Grossman from Sierra Nevada. They're the people that, Everyone seems to know, and Doug O'Dell. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, the, the, the there's always Godfather's an element of that, but I think I think from a sort of brand building perspective, I think that's sort of kind of important, I suppose. And I mean, you know, I suppose our classic one in this country would be uh, Beavertown Brewery. So uh, Beavertown's run by Logan Plant, who just happens to be Robert Plant's son. So I think he had a little bit of a head start on the with, brand the, uh, <laughs> with, with the superstar credentials. but uh. Excellent. Thank you both. Thanks to Marco and Johnny and to Port Street for hosting us. If you have any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future, you can talk to us on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR. Cottonmouth Manchester is available on iTunes, Acast and SoundCloud or direct from the source at cityco.com slash podcasts. Until next time.